Dr. Jonathan Fielding served as the Public Health Director and Health Officer for Los Angeles County for 16 years, where he created, among other things, the Restaurant Rating ABC Grading System. He also directed major improvements in preparedness for major public health threats, increased the use of evidence-based policies and programs, and oversaw the Los Angeles County Health Survey, which provided essential information on the health, health risks, and health attitudes of different socio-demographic subpopulations. Today, we're chatting with Dr. Jonathan Fielding about his insights and perspectives on some of the most pressing public health issues of our time. Jonathan is currently a distinguished professor of health policy and management and of pediatrics in the schools of public health and medicine at UCLA. A brief list of some of his accomplishments include founding the UCLA Center for Health Advancement, serving as the director and chair of the Truth Initiative, which is dedicated to ending youth smoking, And in 2011, he was appointed by President Barack Obama to the National Advisory Group on Prevention, Health Promotion, and Integrative and Public Health. In addition to having earned three master's degrees and an MD, he has authored or co-authored more than 300 original articles, commentaries, editorials, and chapters on various aspects of public health, preventive medicine, and health services. Please welcome Dr. Jonathan Fielding. Thank you so much, Jonathan, for coming today. It's just such a pleasure to be able to talk to you and learn about your life journey and your wisdoms that you can share with me and the whole world on this podcast. And I have to say that you were one of the first people I met when I first came to UCLA, and you just were so open and receptive and and generous with your sharing of knowledge around employee health and employee health programs and really helped stimulate me to uh, be able to do a a study that I had no skills to do at the time. And you really gave me the confidence and also the chops to be able to actually do it and get get something published with a big uh, insurance company that was doing a study across the country. So welcome. Thank you. Very glad to be here. The other thing I think that's important, and you're going to pick this up, I think, in this conversation is that Jonathan has this incredible ability to have a sense of humor and bring to light very complex ideas in in a way that can be communicated to the lay person as well as to researchers and policy people. So hmm, sounds interesting person. I'd like to meet him. <laughs> Well, we'll get to know him through this conversation. Uh, So anyway, it's hard to know where to start. You've served as the director of the L.A. County Department of Public Health for 16 years, but this is just a small part of what you've accomplished. How have you been able to build a career with such a lifelong trajectory? I don't believe in careers. I don't know what a career is. It seems to me that um, you can have a job, which could be good or bad, and unfortunately not enough people have a job that they consider good or rewarding, or you can have a calling, and uh, that really translates into a mission. And if you have a mission, then you don't really consider it a career, you consider it part of your mission. And I think uh, it gives you a very different perspective on the things you do, the things you decide not to do, and how you use your time, because ultimately, the thing that all of us have in, in the shortest supply and most valuable is time. And so how would you describe your calling and mission? 
Well, I, I've uh, always wanted to help people to make a difference. And uh, first I thought I was going to do that by one-on-one -on -one clinical care. But when I had patients whose problems could not be remedied by anything we knew in medicine, I realized that it was the population-based problems that we had to solve, the issues of, uh, of poverty, the issues of poor transportation, inadequate housing, and an educational system which is not very uh, equal depending on who one, uh, who one is, you know, the, the different levels of literacy, the different uh, uh, family situations, family violence, um, all that. And you just get the feeling that unless you attack those issues and the underlying, one of the underlying issues, of course, that cross cuts is poverty, you're not going to get where you need to get. You're not going to fulfill the mission. So uh, I can say I've made very little progress when you think about what, what there is to do, but I feel at least I've tried hard and in maybe some small way made a difference. I feel that you've made a big difference in so many people's lives, not only um, individuals that you've mentored here at UCLA, but also across Los Angeles and the country with all the different roles that you've played. And it's curious to me, you were, I mean, that's kind of a revolutionary thought when you were having it at the time. I mean, when was it that you were doing one-on-one -on -one care? Well, I was doing, I graduated from medical school in 1969 and uh, was in my internship then in residency, and it was during in that pediatrics. time in pediatrics in Boston. And I just uh, got clearly the feeling that I, the more that I looked at the situation, the more we had to look at what we do for populations, not just one-on-one, -on -one or, or at least not only. I mean, I would not in any way disparage medical care. I think it's really important and made a huge difference. But let's focus on the preventive side. And let's focus on the broad determinants of our health and well-being, not just those that we wind up facing and being talked about in medical school, which I think is not the whole picture. Mm -hmm. And we, at the time in 69, would you say that some of the issues or challenges that you were confronted with are different or are, they, are you feeling that it's, there's a theme that's permeated throughout your career? I think the challenges get better delineated and better refined. I think our tools to, to attack some of them are definitely better. I think there's much broader recognition of the importance of what we call the social determinants of health. So I don't think the problems have changed as much as I'd like to see, but I think there's greater recognition. Unfortunately, the greater recognition has not necessarily come with greater resources and uh, I think we have to be very careful because we spend so much more than any other country per capita on medical care, I'm not going to call it health care, and yet our results are worse than any one of the developed countries. So our efficiency is very, very poor, and unfortunately what that's doing is starving the other potential uses, better uses of those funds. So if we're spending, you know, four trillion dollars, maybe we're wasting a trillion dollars. And just think what you could do with a trillion dollars a year. That's every year. And what you could do with infrastructure, what you could do with education, what you could do with nutritional programs, what you could do with transportation, and what you could do with housing and the general issue of support for people that really need it. So I, I'm not uh, uh, very content with how we 
allocate and prioritize what we spend to try and improve health and well-being. And unless we change that to be more consistent with other developed countries, I think it's going to be very hard to make the kind of progress we all envision is possible. Well, I, you know, what you just said, I want to unpack it because I want to make sure everyone understands what you, some of the areas and nuances that you just described, because I think they're really profound, starting with medical care, not health care. So why do you call it medical care, not health care? Well, because I think that when you call it health care, you're assuming that it, it subsumes all those uh, opportunities in policy and program like to improve health and well-being. And well-being isn't just the same thing as, as lack of, uh, of a particular disease or risk factor. So I, I feel that it's critical that we take a, a very broad view of what contributes to health and say, well, medical care is an important part of that. And the estimates are that it contributes 10 to 20 percent of the um, of the contribution to better health. But what about the other 80 or 90 percent? Those are the things we don't we don't spend enough time on. And we don't always realize the public doesn't always realize that they are critical contributors to health, particularly the economic. Uh, mm-hmm. con- so if you had a trillion dollars a year, what could you do with that? And how could our lives be better? How could we have greater equity if we redistributed that money? And we know from the studies in the Institute of Medicine, now the National Academy of Medicine, uh, uh, where many of us have been involved, that you know roughly 25% of what we spend on, quote, medical care is wasted. And that's a, basically close to a trillion dollars every single year. It's profound and overwhelming, actually, to hear that. Before I follow up on what you mean by 25% of it being wasted, I think that the description of what you're saying is looking at the determinants of health, which can be housing, is what you're just, you listed, and economics and education, which are outside of the quote-unquote domain of medicine. And so that is where you're describing that's where we should be spending monies to help enhance people's health and well-being. Is that correct? Yeah, compared to the other developed countries, um, based on a very good analysis, we don't, what we spend as a percentage of our gross domestic product is not very different than other countries if you look at the full range of social services. But the difference is that we spend so much more on medical care that it starves out the other things that we'd like to do with those funds to, and the social services, what are we, are we doing enough for the elderly? Are we doing enough for young kids? What are we doing to try and help families, um, you know, stay together and deal with problems? How, how well, how good a job are we doing with behavioral issues, which are obviously critical and a major determinant? So the um, study uh, by the Institute of Medicine looked at the inefficiencies. How much are we spending? Uh, what, how are our prices different? How are our, um, what's the number of uh, people we have per hospital bed compared to other places? What are we doing that doesn't have evidence, a good evidence base? Um, so they basically divided into a bunch of different uh, pieces. But basically, that was a study in 2009, came up with about 25% was wasted, unnecessary, overpriced. There's definitely yeah. a lot of waste. Well, so... How do you see us being able to shift to to prioritize what I so strongly believe in too, which is this upstream 
health and well-being approach, even sort of even going beyond the determinants of health, but even looking at culture of health, like infusing health and everything and prioritizing it. Well, we have to be careful not to make everybody think that we that we believe health is the only important outcome. You know, well-being is critical and uh-huh. not everybody, you know, defines it the same way. I think, you know, how you feel in your own skin your relationships with family, with neighbors, with your community are, are, are vitally important. Obviously, your economic well-being and stability are obviously critical. So there are a number of things that we all want to achieve. But one point I, I would make uh, in terms of the long, uh, the long haul is unless we also start thinking hard and doing much more about climate change, we are going to wind up with our progeny having real tough time surviving. And um, that recognition, I think, is uh, increasingly widespread, but not universal. And certainly the kind of resources necessary both on the mitigation side, which is reducing the carbon footprint, and on the adaptation side, which is given what's happening, which we can all see right in front of us, what do we need to do to to minimize the effect on human health? We're going to miss an opportunity to help planet Earth be, uh, you know, come to better health and well-being. Yes. I mean, we're so intricately involved and connected and also in terms of resources. I'm already seeing in here in California that so much of our resources are going towards responding to disasters, which could, you know, if we really, again, had some foresight, we could invest in human capacity and, re- and and reduce this carbon footprint and other climate change. It's going to be hard in the short term to reduce the carbon footprint because of India and China, mm-hmm. whose footprint continues to grow, Indonesia, other very populous uh, nations. But what we can do in the very short term is to point the, the way we have to move uh, as a planet. Think of the planet as a patient. What do we do to keep that patient in good health. And in the meantime, what we have to do is realize two things. One, that ultimately the, the, the worst part of climate change is all going to be on human health. I mean, if you're looking at, you know, there's all kinds of issues with the ecosystems and the like, but human health is going to be the thing that suffers and that we have to really be concerned about. And the, and the second point there is that while climate change is, is really important, um, it's also critical that people understand what they can do today. There are a lot of things that one can do, but uh, we have to think ahead, for example, of the changes in the vectors that we're going to see. So the like mosquitoes. And yeah, like the... Ticks. Right, mosquitoes and ticks. I mean, we're going to see diseases we hadn't seen before, hadn't seen in a long time. Um, and that's, that's pretty scary because we don't have vaccines for some of those, and they can be very widespread and can be very dangerous and create serious illness and mortality. Um, so that, that's one. The whole issue of water. There are places in the in the world that don't have enough water now. And we know that one of the predictions that's coming true is we're going to have fewer storms, but they're going to be much more intense. Mm-hmm. I mean, look at Katrina, look at Sandy. We, we are going to have that. So we don't know what to do about that exactly. How do we keep the, that water, for example, now uh, in Los Angeles, most of the water from that goes into the storm drain system right into the ocean, not water that's really used. Mm -hmm. Um, Even at the local, at the house level, 
we need gray water systems that basically use water from things like showers and stuff and repurposes that to um, to water grass and stuff. We need permeable surfaces because the hardscape is what stops water from uh, being recaptured unless it goes directly into a, into a system that, that recharges the aquifer. So uh, there, there's a lot of things that, that we can do. We can have much more foliage, which is a critical piece. Mm-hmm. And Tree People here has done a wonderful job of making that a front and center issue. But still, there's huge amounts to, to go. So uh, there, there are things we can do in the short term. We need to worry about people who are vulnerable. When we have extreme heat, we That's know extreme right. heat kills, and we're going to have more and more extreme heat. And mm-hmm. Some major cities are up five or six degrees on average. Yep. Because of the hardscape, we need to have roofs that um, are not dark, basically light colored that reflect the the sun. So we can go through a long list, but it needs to be at a human level, at a community level. And I'm not sure that everybody is giving it the priority attention that it not only deserves, but absolutely needs. And is that something that the public health department has been active in in terms of trying to propagate this information? Yes. um, The uh, Los Angeles County Department of Public Health has been involved in this issue, has taken a leadership role within the county uh, on this issue. But this is is one, this has to be a large family. It's not just about public health. Public health can be the coordinator. Public health can provide the impetus and provide the statistics that um, show how important addressing this is and what works and what doesn't. Uh, but it's it's much too broad to just be a public health issue. It's a it's a public issue. That's right. And do you feel that our leadership here in California is taking this seriously? Well, we'll see. We have a new governor, uh-huh. and we have some changes uh, in the in the legislature. So I'm I'm uh, I'm optimistic that uh, they're going to. But um, you know, we this is not something that gets fixed overnight, and it never gets entirely fixed. So question is what level of investment priority is this given compared to the other needs that people see and that are right in front of it this is this is not a tomorrow issue although in some cases it can be but it is an issue of the next hundred years and then but by that I mean with plenty of problems today leading to potentially catastrophic or cataclysmic impacts within the generation yeah so Jonathan in your past, have you been confronted with a similar kind of challenge as what you're just describing to me in regards to climate change? No, I don't think, um, you know, way back when I, I was commissioner of actually Massachusetts Department of Public Health, and I was young and didn't know as nearly as much, uh, but this was, not on the, this was not on the horizon. We did not see this as a threat. It hadn't been globally recognized. It hadn't been locally recognized. So this is new, not that new. But certainly it's in the last couple of decades that this has really come to the fore and the evidence is just irrefutable now. But it was not on the agenda. It was not part of the agenda when I was the Commissioner of Public Health, which was in the late 70s. And have you seen any models in our country or other countries that could be used as a roadmap? I don't think there's one model. I think we can take different things from different places. You know, what what has Australia done about the extreme heat? What what have other places done about wildfires? And what has been done to try and get better water capture? Because drought is a huge issue, and desertification is uh, is terrible, and it and it's and it's leading to inadequate crops, 
and a lot of starvation. So those issues were, the issue of not having enough food was there a long time ago. It's been there for a long, for as long as I can remember. Um, and the social issues have, have always been there, but these other ones are, are relatively new and um, we, were, we were ignorant before. And the, and the evidence wasn't as clear. Right. Well, so this clearly is something that is on your mind and on mine for sure, this climate health. What, what would you say keeps you awake at night? Well, I'm concerned about the level of violence in all forms. Child abuse, you know, elder abuse, intimate partner violence, criminal violence. I mean, it is... We have we have a violent culture uh, or subculture, and I'm afraid that that is exploding. But firearm safety, you know, we've made huge progress in computers. I and uh, you know I can't open my computer without putting my my fingerprint on it. But there's been virtually no progress in terms of firearm safety in, in the sense that why shouldn't we have a thing where you have to have your own hand, your own finger? to be able to press a trigger, then nobody else could use it, as, right. an, as an example. We're not using the things we know that could make, make firearms safer. Right. And I think that, that the National Rifle Association, unfortunately, has taken a, you know, uh, if you give them an inch, they'll take a mile. But they're common sense things that we should all consider. And that shouldn't be a, such a partisan issue. Yeah. So that's one thing that keeps me up at night. The other thing that keeps me up at night is the issue of pandemics. Now, the, the most common pandemic we have is the flu, and we don't know exactly how, you know, when it's going to mutate and how much it's going to mutate, and we do a lot of guessing. There is better work going on to try and predict that, but you know, it's we could have had a we could have had a pandemic of SARS. We were lucky we didn't. Yes. We, you know, we were just very fortunate that uh, somebody in China who was infected decided to go to Toronto instead of Los Angeles. Look at Ebola, which is now in its, you know, I don't know how many times there's been an Ebola outbreak and now an epidemic in parts of the Democratic Republic of Congo. There, um, the, the part that now is um, affected is near several neighboring countries. And uh, it's not very, it's, it's remarkable that we have not had it spread from the Democratic Republic of Congo to the other nearby countries that have no experience with it. We saw what happened with the Ebola outbreak um, epidemic in the three countries, which took a huge amount of effort to try and, and control. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, the some Ebola is a... Here. Some ended up in the United some, States. A, a couple, a few yeah. ended up in, in, in the United States and New England and Texas. But, you know, we, 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 we need to think about all those things that can cause pandemics and be better prepared for them. And this is not just a U.S. issue. It's a WHO issue and it's other nation it's the nationalities of, uh, that um, that all need to be prepared and I don't think we're as prepared as we as we need to be um, you know we had those anthrax attacks after 9/11 what happens if you know I can give you a bunch of scenarios that would lead to very very disastrous consequences so I think those are the th things those are the two things that keep me up at night but if you want others I can probably think of them oh. <laughs> I have to go back to my dreams uh, yeah well maybe um, I'd love to hear what your solutions are the violence piece I 
hear a lot of what you're saying is what you've really, what I've observed you do all along, which is find evidence-based practices or practice-based practices, like the thumbprint on a computer and, and, and applying it to another challenge that could be solved through that kind of solution. But what would you say, what would be like, if you had a magic wand, what would you like to see in terms of how would you see violence reduced here? One of the steps. Well, there's so many parts of the violence picture that I'm not sure I have them. One of the things I've most enjoyed is chairing the Community Preventive Services Task Force, which is a 15-member, blue-ribbon, independent, not paid (laughs) group that looks at the evidence for interventions, programs, policies, and system change that can improve health at the population level and improve health equity. And we've gone over, we now have 200 some odd recommendations, a really good staff at CDC working with other people as well. And that to me has really been a it's not enough, but it's been an important step. So one of the one of the areas that I'm really scratching my head on uh, is at the population level, how to promote social well-being. Since I've been reading, like for instance, the, some longitudinal studies around the aging population of the United States, a lot of the, the poor health outcomes are related to poor social well-being and and community engagement. I know there's like you know smaller kinds of interventions that we have found that have worked like you know uh, support groups and things like that but wondered if you've run across anything in your role in the at the preventative task services or other research or reviews or even practice-based work that you've seen that has been effective loneliness is a big problem and, and being alone greatly increases mortality and increases risk of a number of chronic diseases so we need ways to kind of bring people who are alone in, in communities together. And it can be anything from bingo to, you know, tai chi, or it, can be, uh, it could be a dance class, or it could be, you know, swimming. Uh, so physical activity is one good way to get people together. But it does take some resources, and it takes some initiative. And some people need to be coaxed because it's not part of their normal social repertoire mm-hmm. to make new friends at age 75 or 80 or whatever. But it, 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 it can work. And there are plenty of examples around the country that have brought people together in, in, in good ways. Of course, one of the growth industries is the retirement, quote, homes and step down so you can, you can start when you're fully functional and have all your marbles and then this as the aging process goes on you can they have different levels and different levels of of care it's also expensive and most people don't easily have the resources so this is another way that some of that trillion dollars might be well used that's right i think you're right it's there's i think peaks and and troughs with loneliness too i remember was really insightful for me to learn. Unfortunately, it was after the fact, but that apparently when you have a two-year-old, both parents are considered to be among the most lonely in their lives because they're transitioning from their single friends to to people who might have children and they don't know them yet. And so it was, I wish I had known that because I was quite lonely and a little bit sad. And if I had only known that, I might have tried the dance group or something else, you know, with the with the kids, but it's some of it's insight too, isn't it? Because I think people who are lonely are ashamed of feeling lonely, or and 
it might not be... A lot of people are taught to be self-sufficient. Right. Not to have to ask for help. Exactly. Whereas others, you know, it may be part of a culture that people help each other, you know, and even in an extended family or beyond in a neighborhood, in a community. So part of it is the culture. That's right. Sort of pivoting to another sort of less sort of broad stroke, sort of big question arena to something about you, Jonathan, is um, I mentioned it earlier and and when I was welcoming you about your ability to always maintain incredible access as a leader. And I wanted to understand uh, how you know, how do you keep a balance of working in a high pressure role with high expectations of science-based approaches and also being so relatable and accessible? Well, as, uh, as I said before, time is what we have least of, uh, the most precious asset. And as you get older, you realize you have less time in the future, so you have to even be more careful. I don't really know how to answer your question. I mean, I've always worked very hard, um, and I have a wonderful wife who's um, put up with me and who does a lot of things herself, so she has her own life and priorities. I think what's important is to be approachable, and I think if we don't train the next generation of leaders, shame on us. So the people who ask questions and come up and the students who you know have a, have a problem or want to know something about what happened in the past. Um, we can't ignore that. That has to be part of a high priority. But at the same time, you want to keep your, your vision to what could make a difference. Where could your voice help? And the more on the broader scale at the city level, at the county level, at the state level, and at the national level. And, uh, you know, in, over time, things usually come to you rather than having to look for them. But I would have no hesitation if there was something I thought was really important and I had particular skills to help, I'd volu- just volunteer. Uh, so I, I think it's really important to, to keep aware of what's going on very broadly. And it's easier now than it ever was. But on the other hand, you're bombarded with so much stuff that you have to, you have to also make sure that your priorities are clear because it's easy to get sucked into things that mm-hmm. in, in retrospect, maybe they weren't the, the best use of your time. Well, it sounds like, based on some of your boards you're on, the nonprofit boards, you've also dedicate your time to some of those efforts that are related to your big mission of, like, the tree people, for instance. Sure. I, I, you know, I, I divide myself into things I do at the school, which, of course, I'm very excited to do and wonderful to see, the, you know, the optimism and the and the enthusiasm and the intelligence of the people coming through and their commitment uh, to social justice and to improved health. Um, so that's really an important base for me. The second is what's going on in the in government, because that's how a lot of things, policy is what makes the biggest difference long-term in public health. So you have to stay close to that, whether I spent decades fighting the tobacco industry. The fight's not over. So we have jewels now, which are e-cigarettes, basically very fast um, take up by adolescents and unfortunately leading in too many cases to their use of combustible cigarettes Mm. with all the carcinogens and Mm. like. So the fight is not over. Another area that's really important to health is nutrition. And we are um, over-caloried, that's for darn sure. And if you look, we still have a, a continuing increase in overweight and obesity. 
and we know how terrible that is, what, what, what kind of diseases that leads to, um, particularly type 2 diabetes and all the problems it has with complications and the like. That's a lifelong problem. Um, it leads to problems of high blood pressure, can complicate high cholesterol. It's, uh, you know, it's, it has a bunch of bad effects. But one thing we know is that we can provide incentives and disincentives and that those could make a big difference. And the best current example is the sugar tax. Um, places that have put in place a sugar tax have found that it does reduce consumption. Not huge, but, but significant enough to make a difference at the population level. We know that, that the use of incentives and disincentives really works in, in almost all areas at the state level. The federal government, when it wanted to get seatbelts used, you know, said basically you need to do that or you're going to have problems um, with, with the government. And one area that I thought was really interesting was when they wanted to, when the federal government wanted to get the blood alcohol level um, that defines you as being under the influence down from 0.1 to 0.08, what did it do? It basically said to states, because the states have the jurisdiction, if you put, if you don't put that your blood alcohol level down, we're going to reduce your payment for transportation projects. Mm. Mm. So not surprisingly, all of a sudden, all, all, the states, all the states did yeah. that. So in, in, we really have to think of, of incentives and how to make the um, easy choice, you know, the healthful choice. Right. And I think that, that we've made progress, but you have to realize that they're very strong private interests, whether it's the tobacco industry or the sugar industry or the, um, you know, breakfast cereal industry uh, or the alcohol industry. It's not like you're you're in a in a neutral position. You really have to be prepared to fight, and you almost always have fewer resources than the folks you're fighting against, the private interests. So you have to be smart about it. And you have to be collaborative. You have to develop coalitions. What would you say would be a secret sauce that you've found to be helpful in the past? Like tobacco, for instance. With tobacco, it wasn't one thing. It was a bunch of uh, things. So, well, And we can be very proud in California because a number of things started here. The issue of non-smokers' rights was very, very strong and, and important uh, here. And um, the fact that tobacco smoking leads to side stream smoke that affects other people and increases their risk of lung cancer and other and respiratory conditions made it made it not just an issue of smokers it made an issue of it for everybody so that then was you know you, it was easier to get people to say oh yes we have to be careful about that we don't really want to see that because it's affecting us it's not just affecting mm -hmm. the people who are smoking i think um revealing some of the tactics they used and the fact that they knew that people were dying from smoking and yet they all said that you know they didn't think it caused lung cancer when people saw how they were basically lying it changed the view of cigarettes and of the tobacco industry and i think that was that was also helpful um, increasing taxes is one way to change the incentives mm -hmm. and uh, so states have differing levels of taxes but a number of them have put it up quite a bit and then the um, agreement with the attorneys general of the states uh, with the tobacco industry led to money being given to what was then called the American Legacy Foundation, now called the Truth Initiative. And it gave over a billion dollars to put into basically 
helping people understand that tobacco was not good for them and using the best media approaches. And that's made a big difference as well, because it's been, it's been used effectively. I was had the honor of being chair of that board for a while. And, you know, to see how effective counter-advertising can be is, is heartening. And so I want to ask you a couple more questions about your tenure at the L.A. County Department of Public Health and then some other questions that you could offer up advice to our listeners and myself as well. But one is, um, what do you think your biggest challenge was and what do you feel the most proud about your work at the Department of Public Health in Los Angeles? Well, the biggest challenge is trying to get, when I was there, was trying to get agreement on, from the Board of Supervisors on with the way forward. And they represented very different perspectives, and now they represent almost the same perspective, so things are a lot easier to get through, but it was much more difficult uh, when when I was there. What um, do you mean by perspectives of on health? Well, you know, you had people... Um, people who you had two Republicans and three Democrats, and, and there were a difference in the spectrum of how they viewed uh, health issues um, based in part on, on their ideology. So that was one that was, was, was a challenge. Again, the private interests, we don't know all the things that went on, but you know, when something came up and you had contracts, who gets the contract? Uh, you want to resist the political pressures. And um, so that was always a, a challenge. And trying to um, recruit in a timely manner and trying to get things through the bureaucracy in a timely manner was always a problem. But what I'm most proud of is the quality of people at the department and uh, both the people that were there and the people that we were able to recruit who made such a huge difference. Great leaders, great thinkers, um, the right spirit, and very collaborative. That was a great positive um, so that's what I'm most proud to have been working with uh, with those folks and towards the common common goals. I can echo that because I felt when you were leading the group and also what the legacy you've left has continued to have that same kind of work, you know, climate and 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 its capacity to also be so welcoming to not just people like me but students go and work there on a regular basis in the summers and no student no student should graduate with a master's degree from UCLA or any place else without having some idea of what governmental public health is and does that's right I totally agree with you so spending time there for a lot of students is, is an eye-opening experience I, I agree because I think a lot of people are even in the field don't realize the role and the critical role that the departments of public health play in our community because it's sort of t almost taken for granted just like clean water's been taken for granted people don't realize that well remember that the department of public health in los angeles is is, is a county function not a city function and so it has the responsibility for 10 million people which is most you know more than most states so it's in one sense it's a hybrid it has some of the capacities of a big state health department. On the other hand, it, <laughs> you know, it uh, it has to act because uh, very local issues. That's right. It's very geographically really spread out too, right? <laughs> very geographically spread out um, and, uh, you know, different environments, social environments, um, physical environments. 
And 16 years is a long time. I think that's probably three or four times the average uh, length of a tenure or somebody in that position. So I asked myself, why did I stay so long? That, that was what I was going to ask. <laughs> why were, well, why the reason I you? stayed so long, you know, I, people would come up to me um, when I had a hard time and I would be sitting in front of the Board of Supervisors and they would be berating me on some subject. And they'd say, well, how can you kind of take that, you know, kind of year after year, month after month? You know, it's, isn't it embarrassing? I said, you know what? The real issue is I'm working for the people of Los Angeles County oh. and the supervisors, I have to, you know, I have to respect their judgment. But ultimately, the, the, the group that I have to be accountable for and make the and make progress with is, is everybody in L.A. County. So I can't let the political stop me from doing the things that I think can make a big difference. That gets back to your mission, right? Yes. Yeah. And I noticed that you had put Vimeo tapes up about just speaking to the people directly. Yeah. Which I guess goes along with what you just said. Well, you know, now the UN has to take advantage of social media, which was not a big issue when I was there. Uh -huh. It was just becoming, you know, significant size. But we have to take full advantage of the ways to reach people and to reach people in, in ways that they find meaningful. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, now, for example, if you have something, a sentence is more than four or five words. I'm not sure people read it. <laughs> That's true. That's a good point. I mean, one of the things that you did also, I think, that which, which was quite upfront and meaningful to people was your rating of restaurants. So how did you get that idea in the first place, and what is it? Well, I want to relate it to another issue, which is one of the things I'm most proud of is that I I institutionalized this notion of the health officer, public health officer, but health officer, because you'd like to have a person who, when there's a problem, you recognize the individual, you trust, you've built this trust with the individual. And I think that I was able to do that when I was there. So the people expected me on a issue to be front and center. They knew I was going to tell the truth. Um, and it wasn't about me. It was about trying to get that position as one that people could see, you know, kind of has their back, but also is has the smarts and the, the, the support from staff to, to make the right decisions, even difficult decisions, and to tell people when you don't know. One of the hardest things to do when you're in my kind of position uh, there and you have television cameras and the like is to say, I don't know. Uh -huh. Sometimes you have to say that you don't know everything. And people appreciate that. And people right? appreciate that. Yeah, yeah I, I, I think so. Well, I remember with SARS, I remember you being up front and center and that. And I felt that you gave everyone a lot of confidence because there was a lot of fear in our country around that. And also commitment from the emergency rooms and all the other surveillance systems to be vigilant. I mean, you got your message out really well. Well, we have to... Public health cannot be effective alone. So that's a good example where we needed we needed all the physicians, we needed the emergency rooms, yeah. we needed people at the airports, we needed That's right. So that's critical. It's critical to have those kind of collaborations. And they knew that you I mean, I felt that people felt this was something that could be contained and were confident based on your leadership. Yeah, it was um well Again, I think it's not about me. It's about the position and trying to get people to feel good about the 
quality of leadership that they have in yeah. the county government mm -hmm. to deal with these kind of problems. And, you know, it's not about me. It's about trying to get people to feel comfortable about the whole public health function. Right. How do you think you did that? I was willing to be upfront. I was willing to, to do media. It was just a natural part. I think actually one of the most important parts of the job is communicating. Mm -hmm. So it's not a it's not a nice to have. It's not maybe. It's an always. Yes. 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 I remember you also had a physician help write a column in the L.A. Times for a period of time. Yes, I wow. had a column, and I still have a column. Now I have a column in the Hill, which is uh, wow, that's really good. Yes, Talk which goes to policy. all the, exactly, which goes to all the people in on Capitol Hill. Yeah, well read, and I have the only health column on, and I do it once a month. And what, how do you decide on what to talk about? I just try and think of what I haven't talked about and what were what, what might be timely. I mean, I've done several things on vaccine hesitancy. Uh, uh huh. Recently, as an example, because that's a big issue. I've that's done right. things on opioids because that's a. I did one on loneliness. I'm not sure people oh, understood the. That. Yeah, you can go to the Hill, yeah. Jonathan Fielding, and you'll see all my. Can we pitch ideas to you? Sure, sure. Right you sure? You sure can pitch ideas yeah. to me. That'd be great. Uh, so, could we circle back to uh, a little bit more detail on how you got started with the restaurant ratings? Well, there was an expose in one of the TV stations by an investigative reporter who had gotten some footage uh, surreptitiously in the back room in the, in the kitchens of uh, well-known restaurants and saw practices which were, frankly, not, um, not, not mouth-watering. Yes, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> they were pretty disgusting, frankly. Um, people with cigarettes and ashes falling into the food. Oh, and yeah. Things are falling and then being picked up, and it was not good. So um, we had a, a restaurant's uh, inspection system, but people really didn't know much about what we were doing or how we were doing it, and it wasn't as, as obvious to the consumer. So we put together a revamped system that gave grades to restaurants and other retail food facilities based on a whole set of criteria that had to do with the risk of foodborne illness. So what we did was we gave restaurants 100 points, and then they got basically points deducted for problems. You know, was there was the food not at the right temperature? Um, was uh, was there not didn't have information where the fish came from? Um, they were using the same chopping board for uh, fresh fruit and vegetables and uh, uncooked meat and a bunch of things. Basically, 90 to 100 is an A and 89 is a B. And Because you know, people understand ABCs mm -hmm. from kindergarten all the that's way through. Right. I love starting with a and bunch of points. I think that's yeah, great. Start, rather than every, everybody starts at 100 points. Yeah. So then, But then we also had placards. And the placards said what the grade was. But the most important part of it is uh, what the, most people don't know is the real secret of it was the incentives. We wouldn't allow them to have more than to apply for more than one reinspection. So if let's say you got a B and you really felt you had to have an A, you could ask once in a 12 month period to be reinspected, but you had to pay for two inspections. They're all unannounced, of course, and that you had to live with that. So you couldn't Keep repeating and repeating and repeating. Mm. Oh, look at it again until you got the grade you wanted. Mm. So we wanted to do is always have food um, safety be top of mind. And I think we were able to 
to do that. And it's been to be on the spot. Exactly. And it was been widely copied, but it was that incentive not allowing them to have an unlimited number of reinspections and having to pay for those uh, for two. Um, and they could only do it one time in 12 months that I think made a big difference. The thing that I think is most important about what we did was it gave public health a brand. Right. So when you ask people out in the community, what does public health do? They don't have a clue in many cases. You say, well, we're the folks that do the ABCs. Oh, wow, that's the best thing ever. We think that's great. And we <laughs> yeah. don't even go to a B restaurant. And, you know, so it really gave a brand to the, uh, to the Department of Public Health. And, and it gave us an anchor in the public mind. Yeah, it was another uh, way that you instill confidence, it sounds like. Did you look to see if there was a reduction in foodborne illnesses? Yes, we had a paper. The only paper I know of in this uh, regard looked at surrounding counties and looked at uh, L.A. and looked at the time series um, of uh, foodborne illness, severe foodborne illness that led to hospitalization. And clearly ours was going down and the others weren't. So, yeah, it did make a difference. Uh, There was no... No question about about that. And the other thing was that we found that um, we went from about 15% having either a C grade or a number grade, which was even lower than a C, to maybe 1.5%. Because mm. the other ones, most of them didn't stay in business or they had to get their act together. Uh-huh. Right. So it, it really worked well. And there were, of course, violations that would, uh, would lead to immediate closure. Like what? Well, if you, if you had contaminated uh, food, you didn't have the right temperature that you were maintaining things at, you know, that would be immediate closure. There were, there were about maybe 10 things, but, but the important thing is we had to make clear to the restaurateurs and to the public that we weren't there to help the restaurateurs. I mean, we'd help them understand what they needed to do, and of course, but we were there to protect the public. That's right. And that's what guides us. Yeah. For, that's what guides public health. That's what you said before about even sit standing with the supervisors, that you're there for the people. So one other topic that we didn't fully delve into, which I'd love to hear your thoughts on, is, is the teen e-cigarette use that's gone up 78%. That you did mention earlier leads has been leading to combustible tobacco use for, for children. Well, when you see Altria buying a significant portion of that company, you realize that this is just the new war with the tobacco industry. The tobacco yeah. has really now taken the upper hand in, in terms of uh, the ownership and direction of Juul, and it, it's just really sad to see. Sad to see young people again get hooked, be the, be the victims that's right. You know, they start with Juul and they become nicotine dependent or addicted. And then they graduate up to combustibles, not realizing that the level of, in, of increased risk is, is huge. Yeah. And, you know, about a third of the people who smoke cigarettes die of a tobacco-related disease. So it's, uh, I'm really very, very concerned about that. And it just shows that you know, you, you can't you can't ever rest on your laurels. You have to assume that those in private industry, what they're trying to do is maximize shareholder value. Yes. Well, that's not at all what we're interested in. We're interested in maximizing health value, and the, and the answer to that is don't do any of these behaviors. That's right. So looking back at what some of the steps that you thought really helped enhance your ability to reduce cigarette use, what's the arsenal that you're going to 
be able to use on this one? Well, it's unclear what's going to be most effective and where the fund's going to come from um, to, to do it. Um, Dr. Gottlieb made a big mistake in deferring action on the e-cigarettes for a number of years, and then he, and he admitted it. He came back and said, we need to move more quickly, but now he's leaving the right. department. Um, so I think that was, that was a critical mistake, and it gave them more than an opportunity to have more than a foothold to have really a stranglehold on, on, on young people. I think it's going to take, again, um, federal regulation. If you're going to have those kind of things, you want to have them without levels of nicotine that can lead to addiction. Nobody wants to be an addict and be out of control, which an addict is basically with respect to the ingestion of any or inhalation of any substance. But nicotine dependence is not nearly as serious as smoking combustibles because that's nicotine dependence, but it's also the several thousand products of combustion, many of which are carcinogens. There are other potential, there are other issues, uh, menthol cigarettes, for example, to eliminate menthol. The FDA has the authority to reduce, successively reduce the nicotine um, in, uh, in cigarettes can't eliminate it entirely, but it could get it to a level that is non-addictive. But so far, the FDA has not had the gumption to do that. Uh-huh. That sounds like a good solution if we could get the right person it's, it's in one there, of them. right? It's one of them, yeah. Yeah. So this next chapter in your life, which is um, the center that you've developed here at the Jonathan Fielding School of Public Health called UCLA Center for Health Advancement. It's really incredibly intriguing to me, this center, mm-hmm. in so many ways, and especially the what you're doing with looking at models and policies and programs to improve health and health equity, education, criminal justice system. I'd love to hear what your mission and vision for that is. And it really does two things. One, it does modeling in our win-win program that does look just as you stated at policies and looks at the impact of implementing those policies on health, on criminal justice, on the educational system, and on on economics, on the costs versus the benefits in, in dollar terms. So that's one piece, and I think it's a really important piece. The other so piece... that's looking for evidence of what's uh, working. That's taking what we know works and uh-huh. putting it in a broader context so people can particularize it to their jurisdiction. The other thing we do is look at the waste issue. We've had things published, for example, on um, the uh, great increase in knee and hip replacements, you know, much more than in other countries, and the fact that a lot of younger people are getting these replacements now, and perhaps not being aware that they're not going to last forever, and they're going to probably need revisions and replacements, and those are going to be much more difficult operations with probably higher levels of complications, but none of that gets said. Mm-hmm. And so the incentives... What are the incentives for the orthopedist? Right. These are not simple issues, and we don't want to interfere with the practice of medicine, but on the other hand, we want to make sure that people are getting accurate, timely, objective information to make decisions about their own health. So these are the problems in the balance. Health equity, education, criminal justice systems. Are there other areas that you're doing the, your analysis? Those are, those are mainly the, the areas, but, you know, it, it could be um, on a transportation issue, it could be on an educational issue, mm-hmm. you know, it could be on a housing issue. So I think it, what's important is the general methodology 
and the fact that we can put it in understandable form, in graphic form as well as in print. And how are you pushing that out to the jurisdictions? Well, it's not easy. I think um, we're pushing it. We have limited funds, but we've uh, we worked with, with several jurisdictions, including L.A. County. I think we need to continue to branch out and find you know companions who say, you know, this is a critical issue for me in my jurisdiction. What can we do about it? Mm-hmm. And have them um, also feedback ideas to you. Have them as partners. Yeah. 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 And is it so what you're developing are models that can be utilized by policymakers? Or? Yes, it can be, exactly. It can be used by policymakers to decide what programs and policies and system change they want to advance. Uh-huh. A- absolutely. So one of our big goals at the Seminole Healthy Campus Initiative is to infuse the culture of health and well-being into everyday life, mm-hmm. from the police department to the professor's classroom and beyond. And I'm curious because we're I'm particularly interested in the fact that UCs are the number one employer in the state outside of the federal and, and, and state government. And there are 13 other states in the country like that that are the number one employer are the public universities. And quite diverse states like Iowa, North Carolina, New York, Wisconsin, Michigan. And, you know, I feel that we as anchor institutions could actually infuse a culture of health within our, our states and utilize that mission as a way to really shift the conversation, just like you were talking about with climate change, for instance, like really bring to light how important and paramount our health and well-being is, not just individually, community-wise, but our planet in order to enhance and move forward in a more productive, constructive, and meaningful way for individuals and communities. And I'm curious, has, have you, in your process, in your, as you've moved along, have you found any kind of example of policies that have been able to move the needle on this kind of concept of culture of health, you know, meaning people are thinking about it and operationalizing it at, at a community well, Wendy, I think you're in the forefront of, uh, of this movement. I don't know. I, I can think of things that, that uh, could be done. I mean, for example... Um, what would happen if uh, these university systems mandated a one-credit course on the future of the planet? Oh, <laughs> that would be great. And what we need to do as a community, uh, different communities and different collaborations. So there are things that could be done, you know, system-wide. I'm sure there's all kinds of reasons why they'll say that can't be done, but I'm not sure that there are I think if you persevere, you could potentially get that. Maybe it starts so. as a voluntary and then it becomes mm-hmm. compulsory. But we we have to build a cadre of people who understand, even if they're not active. Right. And they also need to know the things they can do in their own life that can make a difference. That's Not right. only to them, mm-hmm. but to others in their community and ultimately the planet. Mm-hmm. And actually... That's, I think it's a very, that's a strong possibility. I don't know if we can mandate it, but we could at least... Offer it. Offer it, exactly. And then you advertise it and you get the students that really learned a lot and you get a dynamic teacher. That's right. And yeah. that's, that can be the tipping point. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Well, actually, one of your students in the School of Public Health is um, working with a 
professor here who has a whole food print kind of calculation and they just are testing this one unit kind of idea to see if they can uh, uh, shift the ingestion of ruminant animal levels from the students who are being exposed to this knowledge of doing sort of self-analysis of how much food they've eaten each day and how Mm. much does it impact the carbon footprint. And they're seeing if one yeah. unit can do it. They, a freshman cluster class actually found significant changes in the females <laughs> in terms of shifting their ruminant intake based on learning about how just taking out one or two days worth of you know, red meat in their diet made such a difference individually. So it, there's, there's some... There's some murmurs of this happening, so you're you're right on the on the idea of maybe expanding it not just to food, but to just the overall concept. You know, just the subject. Let, of let's it. remember that overweight and obesity is our biggest epidemic. That's true. Yeah, that has to be factored in as well. I mean, that's a good we're, point. We're being significantly overfed. That's right. We can't go twenty feet without a snacking opportunity. Yeah. And, uh, you know, that's really, I mean, we've had a reduction in the last three years of uh, longevity, mm. life, lifespan. And you think it's related to the... It definitely, it, well, it's related to several things. It's related to the opioid epidemic, mm. but it's also related over a longer period of time to the just too many calories and not enough activity. That's right. So I'm not a big fan of birds. Oh my gosh! I'm otherwise. <laughs> People should know. I think. I hope everybody knows that we're, we're talking about birds. We're not talking about the ones that fly. That's right. We're talking the ones that crash. Crash and also and don't require any energy exactly. on your part to exactly. to move. Yeah, I know. Believe me, the only thing I've have been grateful to birds for is that it's accelerated the number of bike lanes that are on campus mm. because of the safety factor of these motorized scooters, mm. which I know also you were very involved in getting more bike lanes here in Los Angeles. Yeah. And I have to thank you for that as a biker, as a person who uses a bike. That's how you're supposed to call us. Oh, okay. Not yeah. a biker. I'm so a person who uses a bike. Well, you're wearing leather. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> anyway, thank you so much, Jonathan. You're Is there more something than welcome. that we didn't cover that you wish we had and... Didn't we have. didn't cover the rest of the universe. We left it at planet Earth, but I think that's enough for now. Yeah, I think so. For our lifetime. For our lifetime. Yes, and hopefully our future. Uh, well, thank you for what you're doing. I think it's really so important, this initiative that you've sponsored, spawned, and uh, corralled, pushed. Um, mm. And uh, it's, I think it's showing dividends, so that's great. Well, thank you, Jonathan. You You've been one of my inspirations and I've picked up along the way so many parts of your strategies that I have tried to adopt one the communications piece doing this uh, podcast was some a way for me to hopefully illuminate the light on people like you and others on our campus that are doing such amazing job uh, in terms of inspiring not only our students but also our our community to make it a better place to live, learn. Well, I'm glad to be on your team. Thanks so much for having me. 
And I like to say, you also say play. <laughs> live, learn, work, and play. <laughs> no, live, learn, work, play, and pray. Oh, and pray. I missed that part. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thanks, Jonathan. <laughs> Thank you for tuning in to Live Well today. Today's podcast was brought to you by UCLA's Semmel Healthy Campus Initiative Center. To stay up to date with Jonathan's public health perspectives, check out his monthly opinion piece on the health issues for The Hill. To learn more about Jonathan's research and involvements, please visit our website at healthy.ucla.edu backslash livewellpodcast. To stay up to date with our latest podcasts, make sure to follow our Twitter and Instagram at livewell underscore UCLA.